Hello? Good evening and blessings and welcome to another installment of The Gist of Freedom is Faith. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author, Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African-American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, this is Leslie Gist. Uh, You're listening to The Gist of Freedom. You can uh, tune in to our archive shows at WW Black History University. Tonight we have a special guest, uh, Ms. Renee. Uh, Renee, are you on the line? Renee Moore, good evening. Renee Moore, M-O-O-R-E. Yes. All right. Uh, Ms. Moore, you have an extensive background. Um, uh, if you Google Renee's name, you will see what I mean. Uh, she is involved with black history in uh, Fallon Northrop for years throughout the country. She's been invited to different places. So just give our audience a, a brief snippet of your background. Well, uh, this year I'm particularly excited about the 15th annual Solomon Northup Day, which will take place in Saratoga Springs. I founded this uh, program in 1999. Um, This year there are descendants who have never met each other before coming in from all parts of the country. They are descendants of Solomon Northup, a free black man born in Geneva, New York, in upstate New York, and who was uh, abducted into slavery and uh, came back to write his uh, autobiography, 12 Years of Slave. Um, and in October, uh, Brad Pitt Productions um, and Steve McQueen uh, as director uh, will uh, premiere their um new film called 12 Years a Slave, based on Mr. Northup's life. Mm-hmm. Now, who is Steve Queen? Steve McQueen? Steve McQueen is, uh, you've seen him in, um, I Google him. He is a, he's he is a, writing this down. Okay. We're losing you. Are you there? Yes. Okay. What, what is hear his background? Me? I hear you now. What is Steve McQueen's background? He is, he's done several uh, different films. He's done Shame. He's uh, a British um, act. Um, I'm sorry, director. He's not the Steve McQueen, the actor. <laughs> a lot of people get that mixed up. That's why I asked. Yes, I want you to straighten that he's out. Fairly avant-garde. Uh, director, and I really don't know. I'll tell you a lot about him. He's from, uh, he's an African, he's from Africa, right? He's of African descent. I believe he's um, Guyanese, or, okay. uh, hold on a second, I'm not quite sure. I, I need to get okay. it right. That's not, that's I'm not, not that connected. important. I'm not connected that's... to the film, but I, uh, 
I need to know something more about his okay, background. Well, I suppose. Well, well, we can keep keep it moving because I just wanted to, you know, okay. figure that out. But this show is all about Solomon. But um, you know, so let's talk about Sol- Solomon Northrop. Uh, well, tell Solomon, us. Hmm. Solomon was uh, born a free man in upstate New York. His father, before him, Mentis Northup was given his freedom by the Northup family. And from that, uh, Solomon was never in slavery. He was a, um articulate man. He he knew how to read and write. He played, a, uh, played the violin, and he made his living around the city of Saratoga Springs in various grand hotels, um, like the Grand Hotel. Hotel of Saratoga Springs, playing his violin for people. And that's how he earned his living, his wife, Anne Hampton, and his three children, uh, Margaret, Elizabeth, and Alonzo. And so it's those descendants of those three children that will be coming to the event this Saturday. Wonderful. Well, my host has just just arrived, and um, before I pass you on to him, I'd like to ask you a few questions about um, Solomon, um, I just did a little bit of research. I'm, I'm not a historian on him. Um, can you tell me about this law, this anti-kidnapping law, and what role did his wife play in helping him gain gain his freedom? He um, he posted. Actually, he befriended a Canadian, Samuel Bass who was working on the plantation with him, and he posted a letter. And this letter went forward to, uh, was carried back and posted for him and carried back to Saratoga Springs where uh, Parker and Cephas, these are the two people that received the letter, and then his wife also carried it um, to Northup, um, I'm sorry, Henry B. Northup, who was an attorney in Hudson Falls. And it was this attorney who we believe was his childhood um, friend, if you would, um, discovered what had happened to him and and then proceeded to um, contact both Democrats, uh, I should say Whigs and Dems, to get judges and those that could issue uh, legal documents to try to obtain the freedom and go back and get his friend, Solomon, in Louisiana. And this took a great deal of uh, energy and difficulty on his part uh, during a time where you can't just get on a plane or, you know, and automatically show up in Louisiana. He had to spend a lot of time obtaining uh judges, documents, and so on to go back and claim his friend in Louisiana and help him return to freedom in the city of Saratoga Springs. Oh, okay. Um, so so this, is it true uh, that she wrote a letter? Because I have a letter here. No, he wrote a letter uh, that was posted by Samuel Bass and you know because they at that time they wouldn't want to, anyone to know that slaves could read or write and see because he was literate he would want yeah. to do that kind of undercover 
And so Bath uh, assisted him in getting this letter posted so that it could get to um, Parker and Cephas in Saratoga and his wife uh, could uh, proceed to get help uh, and Henry B., being uh, an attorney, could uh, file the necessary papers and proceed from a legal standpoint to go and uh, obtain Solomon and, and return him to freedom. Okay. Um, Preston is on the line. Preston, are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. How are okay. you, uh, Renee Moore? I'm Preston, yes. Washington. And... Uh, Leslie just mentioned that letter and uh, from Solomon's wife to the government. And if I may, I'd like to read that letter to our audience. Oh, the letter um, that he posted? Uh, yes. Oh, great. I, I believe it's the letter. Um, Your yes. Excellency is entreated to employ such agent or agents as shall be deemed necessary to effect the restoration and return of said Solomon Northup in pursuance of an act of the legislature of the state of New York, passed May 14, 1840, entitled, An Act More Effectually to Protect the Free Citizens of This State from Being Kidnapped or Reduced to Slavery, end of quote. And your memorialists will ever pray. Now, that was his wife that wrote that letter? Hello? Um, I, don't, I don't believe so. It, it sounds, is this the letter that was posted? On uh, Facebook? Uh, oh, is it? Okay. Okay, no, I haven't seen that one. Okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah, it might be on Facebook. Um, I'm not sure whether that was his wife or, or the letter that he would have posted. Um, he was a literate man, and he wrote this letter that Bass carried forward. And it, if it wasn't for Samuel Bass getting this letter off the plantation and posted to people in Saratoga and and to his wife and so on, um, he probably never would have gotten free. So that letter is very important. You think this was written by her? By uh, it was written by his wife to the government. Anne Hampton. Okay. Okay. No, then this is not this is not his letter then posted with uh that they would have received. So okay. okay. How did All right. you, uh, Well that's very good. I don't think that's in the um I don't think I've seen that letter actually. Well tell but, us uh I mean, hey, let our audience know, how did you get involved in developing the uh, Solomon Northup Day? I saw an extensive uh, exhibition at uh, Union College, not Memorial, in 1999. And that's when I discovered that he, in fact, had history in Saratoga. And that, um, for the most part, people are not aware that there is an African-American presence in the city of Saratoga Springs. And so I thought it a good idea um, to bring his history forward 
and to see if there was some way in which we could honor his life and his struggles because it must have been horrendous for him to have been born a free man and then abducted um, into slavery. Although his story really, uh, if you will, speaks to lots of stories at that time when people were being um, abducted into slavery and taken back. It was uh, even after the laws had changed, um, free blacks and uh, were being taken by, for lack of a better word, bounty hunters back into slavery and uh, held against their will. I mean, Solomon had free papers that we believe were taken from him, uh, that he was either drugged or whatever, and they were taken from him in Washington City, which we now call Washington, D.C., and then he was held in the slave pen about where the Department of Transportation is now across from the Hershorn. That would have been the location uh, of the slave pen. And uh, what and year was he... What year was he abducted, and uh, the upcoming movie, uh, what kind of influence did you have on the movie, any part of it? I don't know that I had any influence on it other than <laughs> other than the fact that perhaps um, someone, Mr. Pitt or someone saw this uh, history out on Wiki or some medium became interested in the in this fascinating story. And what year was he? Uh, he, would have been abdu- he would have been abducted in, um, what is it, 1841? 1841 in the city of Washington, which we now know as Washington, D.C. No, well, uh, 1841, about the corner of Congress and Broadway, Saratoga Springs, and then taken from Saratoga to Washington City, uh, to um and and thrown into a slave pen we he would have passed through several um hotels there in Washington DC because he thought he was going to be you know playing his uh violin and he was really lured under the impression that this was for work um and had no idea, so he was drugged, his papers taken from him, and we think the slave pen would have been, I guess that is uh, Constitution, corner of 7th and Constitution about now, where Department of Transportation across from Hershorn is uh, located now, held there, and then taken by ship to Louisiana, where he served three separate masters, Um and through that uh, process and through Henry B. Northup going forward to rescue his friend because his name was would have been changed from plantation to plantation very often. And uh, it would have been very difficult for Henry B. Northup to find and trace down where his where his friend was. So... Um, he came back to Saratoga and wrote his, we believe the autobiography, 1853. Um, And then he uh, came back and went about um, 
getting it published, getting it, um, and then going around selling and talking about his uh, experience. And really, we believe he would have acted as an abolitionist, uh, having gone through this and helping others uh, obtain their freedom as well. And um, what do you think influenced the filmmakers to come to Saratoga? I understand they're having a, a sneak preview this weekend. You know anything about yes, how they're going to throw? They're gonna, yes, they're going to show um, segments of the film and an actor. Uh, her name is very little Lupita Lupita Ngongyo. I believe, from Kenya. She plays Patsy, who, and Patsy's name is in the autobiography. She plays Patsy in the film. And uh, she will be attending as well as some people from um, the production company and um, Fox Searchlight. So it's pretty, we're pretty excited about it. And like we said, Descendants, um, who had never met before. This is like a huge family gathering. We anticipate between 30 and 40 uh, descendants coming in from all over the country. We have um, Don Papson, who is uh, the founder of the North Country Underground Railroad Historical Association in Plattsburgh um, mm-hmm. and founder of the North Star um Underground Museum, Underground Railroad Museum, uh, and All Sable Chasm. He is coming to speak as well as Paul Stewart of the uh, Underground Railroad Historical, Underground Railroad History Project of the Capital Region, which is located in Albany. Uh, And they are in their 14th year. uh, conducting a conference, if you will, which happens at um, Russell Russell Sage College, uh, and this conference is uh, extensive and covers all kinds of uh, history on the Underground Railroad and brings people in from all over the country, as well as uh, the Young Abolitionists, which is a group of young people who are now being groomed and uh, exposed to uh, archaeology and underground railroad history and and what this all means for them uh, as African-Americans or just as American history scholars because this is really, um, I really hate to hyphenate the history. It is uh, American history after all. Yes, it is. Um, now, there are some uh, reasons why I thought that um, the history was important. I thought that once young people know whose shoulders they stand on, if you will, they're less likely to, so they're more likely to um, 
respect who they are and maybe even think twice about, you know, their involvement and who they want to be as people and before they do something, um, you know, negative to themselves, involvement, drugs or gangs or so that once we bring to light all the people who struggle for freedom in the Americas that, and, you know, encourage a better understanding of freedom and justice uh, throughout the world that we can help turn around perhaps some of our young people who might be headed in the wrong direction. Hello? Hello? Are you still there? Hello? Okay. Yes, yes. Oh, yes, now yes, I hear still you. here. I couldn't hear yeah, you. I'm okay. sorry. Our phone has okay. had technical difficulties. Uh, both of our lines dropped out. So Uh-oh. I'm saying, hold on, oh, no. you couldn't hear me. <laughs> but yes, could you that's hear right. Me? Uh, yes, I can hear you, but um, okay. the computer died on both ends. He should be calling calling back any second. Um, I was asking, I, I was what, thinking, I want uh-huh. to come up to, to see the film and to learn more about Solomon. What other attractions are there uh, if for our listeners that are close to Saratoga, New York? Well, um, well this is the 150th year. Oh, before I go on to that, I want to say that okay. Steve McQueen is from London, England, the U.K., and his birth name is uh, Stephen Rodney McQueen. And you would have seen him. He's been an Obie um, Award winner. Okay. You know, the officer <laughs> of the Order of the British Empire. And so he has done, uh, he may not be as well known here in this country. He resides in um, Amsterdam, but he has done uh, several films. He made a movie called Shame here in the U.S. Uh-huh. And uh, he is, um, he is, what, how do you say, I think, uh, a sort of, avant-garde, uh, if you would, director. He has his own, very own style. He did uh, another movie called Hunger. And so he is, appears to be a, a drama, a dramatist in a way that um, might add great uh, skill to uh, making this film 12 Years a Slave, or really. I'm anxiously awaiting uh, this film because of his um, his directing style, if you will. Okay, now I've I learned an awful lot uh, from my Facebook friends, and since I posted um, a picture about Solomon North, I've uh, received several comments about um, a previous film. And uh, Preston, you should be on the line again. Are you there? I'm here. Sorry about oh, that. Oh yes, you're you're okay. speaking of the first film, which would have been done by Gordon uh, Parks. Wow. Gordon Parks, yes, Gordon Parks did the first film, 
It's a docudrama uh, made in 1984 starring Avery Brooks. And I, I actually it. spoke to Mr. Yeah, did you see that? I saw that movie. Oh, wow. Okay. I did. So, in fact, yeah. um, it uh, displayed uh, Solomon getting married while he was in slavery. Is that any truth to that? Well, that's why I use the I use the um, term docudrama because the the historians um, such as David Fisk and Clifford Brown, uh, PhD Union College, these are people who say that it it you know everybody has their own version, and I again I am waiting for. Uh, Mr. McQueen's version of this autobiography. I think that anybody who really wants to know the more exacting story should uh, avail themselves and you know read the autobiography, which is on the on the shelf. And by the way, there's also um, an auto an audio book by Frank Aiken, Film and Publishing, that is narrated by Lou Gossett Jr. and this. Uh, auto book, audio book is um, absolutely riveting. Um, Lou Gossett Jr. does a uh, outstanding job of uh, holding the listener um, uh, interested in the the this, this 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 compelling autobiography and how exciting it really is comes through with Lou Gossett Jr.'s uh, narration. So okay. again, the yeah, and you so you know when you're dealing with movies and Hollywood, you um, you go with their interpretation of the um, actual story. But of course, reading the autobiography, you get the full scope of exactly uh, what happened. Okay, and that audio again. That was Frank Aiken. Is that um, a it's called the audio book. The audiobook title is uh, 12 Years a Slave, and it's by Frank Aiken Film and Publishing, and the narrator is Lou Gossett. If you Google it, it's for sale on Amazon, and you can actually pay for it and download it onto your MP3 and listen to it at your leisure. Okay. Uh, did you see the movie uh, Django? Yes, I did. I I like Tarantino. <laughs> okay. What do you think of Hollywood dramatizing our heroes? And particularly, well, it's my understanding that Django was not a a real character. Is that mm-hmm. correct, or am I under? So I think that Tarantino. I think you know every director had his different style. Tarantino likes to. Um, he he goes about uh, I think uh, making fun of people a little bit and and making fun of um, all kinds of people white people as well I think he he wants to point he he he's very clever in his um, usage of um, language and uh, how he portrays people uh, I think it, I think it's brilliantly done and I'm not offended by the use of the N-word, um, certainly during that time that he is, uh, that this film is, uh, theory is supposed to be, he, um, I, I just, um, 
it took me three or four times looking at it to realize that the story, I believe, is about um, Django and about Stephen. These are the primary um, players. Um, and he makes clear the difference uh, between Schultz as uh, clearly a, a white man who um, he's a businessman. You know, for him it's all about business. He's not really caught up in um, this slavery, and we see uh, him go through a metamorphosis, I believe, where he does not uh, um, um, understand the brutality of it, because keep mm-hmm. in mind, he's he's not an American. He's here, uh, and but he's a well-educated uh, European who speaks multiple languages, and then we see um, a not-so-educated uh, white as DiCaprio, who is uh, wealthy because of money that he acquired and deals in slavery, but not particularly well-educated and doesn't even speak French. So we're looking at very, I think uh, Tarantino uses this to distinguish, and then we see Don Johnson, who, and and he sets up this scene where he's going through this, the young girl is asking how she should treat him and how she should treat Django, and... uh, (laughs) She doesn't understand, but by him, by their making this delineation between do we treat him like treat him like a slave, or we treat him like a white man, or do we treat him? And then in the final analysis, we treat him like a peckerwood, which I think uh, you is used to distinguish that even in white society, um, there's this delineation between uh, poor white and those who are considered above the fray because they are wealthy or have money. Do you, does that make – do you understand where I'm going with it? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. And in my reference to uh, heroes, obviously uh, Django was fiction. However, the, the larger narrative in our history, going back to the Underground Railroad, we know there were a lot of individuals who went back into uh, the slave yeah. state to free their women, to free their wives, their children, grandparents. Um, Yes, I appreciate that. I appreciate Tarantino doing that, you know, bringing out this point that this man would have gone back into, onto a plantation and went, when he could have kept going, he wanted to go back and get his woman. And I think that is, I like that portrayal because I, I feel like he's not putting down, uh, black men in a way that, uh, you know, society frequently does. But I think the relationship between Stephen and Django is critical to the dialogue because we're seeing, um, we're almost seeing black-on-black crime, if you understand what I'm saying here. Uh, It's Stephen, without Stephen, there probably would have been no story because Stephen is the one that alerts um, Master Candy as to what might be a plot, and that turns the whole thing around. We don't see any loyalty. Stephen really believes that he is not one of the others. He's different. He has the key, if you would, to the executive washroom. And so since he does, he um, 
totally uh, acts in a way that is, for lack of a better word, uh, he has no heart or uh, he's totally disloyal, and his loyalty lays with uh, the master. Even though he is still a slave, he does not perceive himself to be. He's arrived, he lives in the house, he's, uh, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, who is Stephen? Is that the Django character's name? No, Stephen is Samuel L. Jackson's part, which I think is key to the entire movie. And we see that soliloquy um, delivered by um, Samuel L. Jackson as Stephen between the legs, if you will, of um, uh a fox. We see this this speech, this, this soliloquy to the audience, where he talks about going to another plantation and how harsh it's going to be. And so then the audience gets some idea of how brutal uh, slavery would have been. And that whole scene where the man comes in to with the knife, uh, as though he's going to uh, mutilate this man. And so we see some of the true brutality of uh, slavery in America. Mm -hmm. But that, um, when we think about the larger narrative as well, uh, of course it was fiction with this Django, one single character going in. And again, I'll go back to uh, the Underground Railroad, uh, the Vigilance Committee, um, you know, going in and... uh, actually preventing a lot of, uh, of people being kidnapped, uh, fighting bounty hunters, such as those individuals that rode with John Brown, uh, that yes. they were the vigilance committee as well. Right. And would have prevented, and they also fought uh, the bounty hunters of that day. Yes. And yes. Uh, I think the Copeland brothers were involved in that. Uh, yes. And uh, so it's that narrative uh, that somehow, you know, I think uh, the director kind of downplayed uh, in his uh, depiction or his fiction, and I understand that it is Hollywood. And uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Newby that rode with John Brown, and the character of Django might be based on uh, this individual known as Nubi. Uh, and here again, Nubi, uh, along with uh, others, were uh, very vigilant in their efforts to fight the bounty hunters, etc. So in the docudrama that we were talking about earlier... It's by uh, Gordon Parks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, by Gordon Parks. And um, oh yeah, and uh, you know, bringing this whole narrative to today, and I'm thinking of the Zimmerman situation um, there in Florida here recently, and the controversy surrounding his uh, his acquittal. How do you think the Vigilance Committee might have dealt with Mr. Zimmerman? <laughs> well, 
Well, I think he's going <laughs> to – I think he would have – the Vigilance Committee would have um, probably been um, quite violent with him. They might have taken him and uh, tried to do away with him. I don't know. He um, – and certainly John Brown may have tried to do a few things for him. His Brown was, uh, uh, how do you say, very proactive, if you would, and uh, serious about his uh, anti-slavery uh, views. And we do have John Brown Day up here, actually, further up um, in Lake Placid every year. And it happens, I believe, in June, May, May or June, just before my event. Wow. Uh, it's called John John Brown Lives. It happens in Lake Placid. If you Google it, you'll see uh, Martha. Uh, John Brown Lives. John Brown Lives. Martha Swan is the director up there in Lake Placid, New York, and that happens each and every year. Um, yeah. So... Uh, I I think Mr. Zimmerman may be uh, in in a bit of a. I, I, I'm glad to see that uh, the community did not riot and, and go on and so on. But I think he may have to be a little bit careful about his where he goes. And uh, but I think that uh, this really speaks to another uh, illusion of inclusion, which is something that. Stephen and Samuel Jackson's part would have had in Django. He really believes that, in many ways, we in the African-American community really believe we're included. And I think the, 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 the nerve shock that would have gone through the community um, and across the country is that nobody really expected that um, based on what they knew and and the justice system would have uh rendered a not guilty plea, I think that was a, a shocker uh for for some of us and i think I think that um this really speaks to how much political work we really need to do and um, in uh Georgia and Florida. Certainly, uh, folks need to, those folks of goodwill, white and black, um, need to come together and change that kind of law because that almost makes open season on black males. And I can't imagine that this young man, uh, regardless of his uh, past or whatever, they brought up stuff to me that didn't have anything to do with the current issue. I don't know how you could justify getting out of your car when the police said do not pursue. I would have thought that in and of itself uh, made an illegal posture for him, which he couldn't justify. If you fear for your life, why go forward? I would just say, you know, stay in my car, lock my doors, and wait for the police to come, but he pursued this, and uh, with his record of being uh, somewhat of a cowboy and thinking of himself as uh, a self-made police officer. Um, yeah, but you know, the parallel would be um, profiling, uh, as they did back in slavery, when you had the patrollers going out and, yes. you know, questioning black folks. Uh, you know, you're not where you're belong. You're not in the right place. Let me see your papers from your master. So Trayvon, 
uh, as far as Mr. Zimmerman was concerned, was not in his place. So for him to disregard the police, and I think he did that with authority, he would not have disregarded them altogether unless he knew that there was a subtle inference for him to carry on. And they had to, you know, know that these radio communications are being recorded, uh, that they had to say what they had to say. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, do you think our children today, if they were to learn about the real Jenga, it's Mr. Newby who was associated with the Vigilance, uh, Vigilance Committee, would they be better prepared in dealing with stalkers and bounty hunters such as Mr. Zimmerman, uh, both politically and physically? I don't know. I don't know. That's a good question. I think certainly, though, we need to, I think, you know, this is a wake-up call as to uh, we need to educate our children when they walk the streets and, um, you know, street law, what I can be asked, what I can't be asked, what I can do, how I should conduct myself. And unfortunately, uh, it puts us all on guard a little bit about, uh, our children being out by themselves. Um, my my concern, and this, of course, is hindsight, is that I would have preferred that, you know, a 17-year-old not walk home at 2 o'clock in the morning by himself. And so my question would have been, is there not someone in within the black community that could have either escorted him, driven him, or he could have slept where he was? for the night rather than do that. I mean, and that's not to say that's not to say that uh, we sh- that black people shouldn't be able to walk, but I mean, I think this is a wake-up call in reality that in today's world where laws like that exist and we see someone get away with murder that we have to better prepare ourselves regardless as we did in slavery. Nice. You know, as the vigilant, excuse me. Yeah, that's an excellent point, Renee. Um, You know, some sort of system where young men need to be taught, you know, if they were on the phone to hang the phone up, dial 911, call someone, uh, an equivalent would be a member of the Vigilance Committee or some other uh, responsible adult, I think. Excuse me for interrupting, but I thought that was an excellent point. Uh, you know, in segregation, I think when black communities were uh, when blacks were community, that kind of thing would never be allowed. I think we have, with the illusion of inclusion and assimilation, we have forgotten uh, from which we came, you know, and that we haven't been out of slavery that long, if you look at the history. And so we've only, you know, what I'm saying, and so. We have to pay better attention to um, how we take care of one another. And one of my questions I put out on Facebook was, what do we owe each other? Excellent point. Excellent Um, point. I don't don't, uh, perceive that. I mean, there are there are certainly, you know, whites who are just as upset about this verdict as there are black people. So I don't want to leave them out of the dialogue, but I say certainly good people have to circle their wagons and look at where we are in society and help prepare our children 
better for walking the streets, uh, who's, you know, I mean, I would have, I, you know, I would have preferred that at 17 he not be walking home at 2 o'clock in the morning. That, and I guess, you know, if I was going to roll back the film, if you would, that would be something that I would have said, don't leave the house, don't leave where you are and the safety of where you are, because in the final analysis, we're not very safe. You know, somebody needs to make sure that, you know, if you leave the house, I know about what time you're going to, or you call me when you arrive. I think these are probably checks and balances that we may need to return to. But actually, it wasn't 2 a.m. in the morning that Trayvon was out. It was much earlier than that, wasn't it? Oh, was it it earlier? See, I may be wrong. No, it was about 7 p.m. It was Uh, 7 p.m.? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's another issue that a lot of folks are having uh, when you really understand uh, the facts of the case. Yeah, it was about 7 p.m. And you mentioned a very good point about what we owe one another. We know um, we had mutual aid societies at one time in our community, which we uh, lost in the 60s, which was probably an unintended uh, a not intended consequence of the civil rights movement. And uh, <clears throat> so we don't have a lot of those mutual aid uh, societies and communities as we once had, and maybe that's what needs to be reestablished, do you think? Well, yes. Well, well, we're such a fractured group at this point. Like I said, a simulation has really hurt us in a sense that, you know, we. what is community? Who is the community now? Who recognizes themselves or feels an allegiance or camaraderie between other black people, you know, um, mm-hmm. that look like them or don't look like I mean, it's just, it's, it's a hard, uh, at this point in 2013, um, I don't know that people really feel a kinship uh, if you will, with one another, wow. and that's what it takes. That's what it takes to really say, "I'm going to be my brother's keeper," and what that really means. And when you have the black bourgeoisie who have become prominent and well-to-do, and the first thing they do is move out of the community. When you don't have blacks living in the community as uh, role models for black uh, children. Uh, the thing to do is to become successful so you can move away from other black people. Uh, exactly. You know, we're, yeah, we're dealing with, um, yeah. We don't have schools, hospitals, libraries. Our churches are getting somewhat corrupted by a lot of gentlemen who are coming on now teaching, preaching and teaching prosperity, individual prosperity not community prosperity. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of communities now, which may be a little too late, are developing bad black campaigns uh, within their communities, uh, trying to bring the community back. You know, in some areas, a dollar would circulate in the black community for about seven years. Now I understand that black circulation of that dollar is down to two years. Uh, a lot of this is what you're speaking to. I can remember being a kid where we had co-ops. My mother volunteered at a co-op. 
uh, where they bought in bulk. But now you got Costco and what's that other big outfit? Okay. You know. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you're, you're bringing up some very uh, excellent points. Uh, well, I don't. I don't think that we as African Americans, if there is a way, can. Um, we need to. I mean, we. There is a justice system, and these checks and balances are supposed to be in place. But in many cases, they fail us. But we have to protect us in a way that uh, we have to protect each other. Uh, we cannot uh, wait for uh, white or white society to value us. We're always asking for equality. I don't believe we should ask for equality in a way that... Uh, I mean, you can walk across the Atlantic on the bones of the dead. Sixteen million Africans lost their lives before we even arrived on this continent. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, uh, that speaks to me of uh, people's great survival. We survived the most horrendous Holocaust known to man, and so I think we as Africans need to lift our heads up. And realize that we've done very well under the under the circumstances. However, I think there is room for improvement when we've lost a couple of generations to um, the television set, uh, for lack of uh, a better word. Uh, Madison Avenue. We are way too large a consumer. Okay. Uh- Getting back to that uh, trade, uh, we are consuming at great rates when we don't have a seat at the table. Hello. Getting back to Trayvon Martin, there. Do you I'm think? I'm sorry. Uh, getting back to Trayvon. I thought I lost you there for. Uh, we don't. Oh. We don't have a seat. We don't have a seat at the table. We're not. Uh, uh, be, we're not in charge enough of our own destiny. We are waiting for inclusion. We're asking for jobs. We're asking, asking. We want to be considered good enough. In my estimation, we're better than good enough. We are uh, survivors of the most horrendous Holocaust known to man. There's no reason for us to be apologetic for who we are or any of our shortcomings. We have done accomplished leaps and bounds. Uh, in a short period of time, there's more to be done. I think we really need to understand economic power. I always say power is green because if we are consuming everything we can, those are the outer trappings of success. And most wealth is accumulated generationally. So we're running approximately 12 generations behind whites in spite of the fact that we are better educated than we've ever been. We don't have the economic power that we should have been able to garner by now if we'd been more a little bit more discerning as to how we spend our money and, and, and where we spend it and how we no. spend it. I mean, there, there, 
I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go on and on. <laughs> You're okay. But talking about this power, and if we look at um, a modern-day vigilance committee, would the NAAC, you think, fill that bill? And did they drop the ball by not being proactive before the trial? Um, you know, here we had an all-white jury uh, in the Trayvon Martin case, and um, with the exception of one female who was, I believe, Hispanic, uh, no change of venue, you know. Uh, they were allowed to do a character assassination on Trayvon, training him as a dope-smoking fiend of some sort. Uh, so it really put a, a stain on his character. Uh, no witnesses brought forth uh, who were subjected to Zimmerman's previous violent behavior. Um, the judge's instructions uh, were somewhat biased uh, as she gave to the jury just before she dismissed it uh, for deliberation. Uh, so what is your take on that in terms of a modern-day... Uh, well... Renee, we've got another show here to do. I really am going to have to beg uh, your forgiveness. Okay. I'm going to have to let yeah. you go, but I certainly want to talk to our producer about having you back uh, here. Uh, I think you got a lot of things to talk about, and particularly this John Brown uh, celebration. I think that lady Martha has been a guest on the show previous, but I'm going to have to say good night to our guest. All right. Today who is the founder of the Solomon Northup Day. And um, that's in New York, right? Saratoga? Yes, Saratoga Springs, New York. I'm Renee Moore, the founder. It's this Saturday, uh, July 20th, at Filene Hall Skidmore College. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thanks a lot. Good night. Thank you for having me. I enjoy talking with you and look forward to talking to you again. Certainly. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Good evening. And blessings, and welcome to another installment of the Gist of Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight. And we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, everyone. My name is Preston Washington. I'm your host here, stationed in Kansas City, Missouri. And um, I want to remind you that these shows are archived and can be picked up on iTunes at www.blackhistoryuniversity.com. And we're coming to you over www.blocktalkradio.com backslash blackhistory. My guest this evening is Tom Congleton, who is a bookstore owner. 
Hello there, Tom. Hello, sir. How are you? Okay. And uh, where's your bookstore located? Tell We're us in Gloucester City, New Jersey, which is right across the Delaware River from Philadelphia. Okay. What was that again in New Jersey? In Gloucester City, New Jersey. Oh, Gloucester City. Mm-hmm. Okay. How long have you been in the bookstore business? Oh, I think you- I, full-time, but I've been in it for about, oh, 27 years, and I've dabbled uh, from my youth for over 40 years. So. so what got you interested in books in your youth, and what type of books? Um, I think I think in my youth I was always um, fascinated by older things like antiques and things like that. I had an, uh, a, a great aunt who collected antiques, and uh, I, being fascinated with that, I naturally gravitated toward books, which uh, which were I was always a reader, uh, and so I've developed developed my rare book business in lots of different ways. And um, one of our specialties is African American literature and history. Which sort and I understand you are an expert in the hip hop era. Well, I wouldn't exactly say that. Uh, although I think that um, institutions and universities have begun uh, collecting hip hop, you know, early hip hop history, and it certainly informs world culture very greatly. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell us about the Sugar Hill Gang. Well, I don't know anything about them particularly. <laughs> I think think I'm I'm not I, it would be a wrong to characterize characterize me as an expert in hip hop literature. I think that one thing about hip hop literature being collected and I think one great place to find out about it is the Cornell Hip Hop Collection is uh it started out as local uh local culture. I mean with on a matter of, you know within a few blocks of the Bronx and has since gone on to become uh essentially a model for world history in both music, dance, art, advertising, urban culture, all all manner of things. You know? So the Cornell Hip Hop Collection, is that uh, associated with Cornell University? Yes, sir. Uh, their special collections have gone out, uh, have gotten it, and I think they just announced the other day that they uh, uh, got the collection of, uh, or the archive of Africa Bambata, who the uh, founder of the Universal Zulu Nation and one of the one of the three founders of hip hop. How did you get involved with the uh, collection? Well, I, I I frankly am not all that involved with it. I just find it uh, a pretty fascinating thing. I co-teach a class at Rare Book School at the University of Virginia with Catherine Reagan, who's the curator, who's the uh, head of special collections at Cornell. So I've become sort of fascinated with it. So. Oh, I see. My general uh, inventory has more to do with earlier African-American literature and history, and I think that uh, it's just interesting that, uh, you know, sort of the we're infor- our past sort of informs the future. And, you know, it, we, it starts out in with certainly with African-American history. Uh, okay. You know, rare books have to do with, uh, often have to do with early slave narratives and, and the whole experience in the 18th and 19th century. And, you know, the history continues to evolve right up to the present day where you get to the things like the hip-hop collection. Could you repeat that course that you said you teach? Oh, it's a course at uh, Rare Book School at the University of Virginia. Rare Book, Rare book. Okay. School. school. It's an independent uh, institution that's supported by the University of Virginia that teaches teaches us about books and the and printed material as artifacts and how they the these artifacts actually inform our our culture. So now in your uh, bookstore. And what's the name of your bookstore, by the way? It's called Between the Covers Rare Books. 
Okay. And in those rare books, what gems uh, do you possess that uh, informs us of our African-American history? Well, I'll give you an example. Right now I have, uh, it's not just books, it's also you know manuscripts and ephemera and things like that. Right now I have the Elwood Evans uh, collection of abolitionist autographs, which is, he, Elwood Evans was a, a an early 19th century gentleman who collected autographs, but one of the things he collected was abolitionists, mostly white abolitionists. However, amongst those is that he collected was one of the very, very few, maybe one of only three or four known autographs of Sinke, the leader of the Amistad uh, captains. Whoa, that would be a rarity. It, well, it, what was his name again? Was it I. Woods Evans? Elwood Evans. Elwood. Elwood yes. Evans. And he was a white abolitionist, uh, uh, but and who who liked to collect autographs, and he collected autographs of people like the English abolitionist Thomas Clarkson and Joshua Giddings and a, a number of other people. But mo- most importantly, he one day went to a fundraiser at what was the Lombard Street Colored School, where uh, Sinke and another one of the Amistad captives named Foulet were going around and they, these abolitionists were trying to raise money to return them to Africa. And they went to a number of churches where they would get 20 or 30 or $40. And when they went to the Lombard Street Colored School for, for grammar school children, they only raised $2. It was very interesting to see that they would actually go there, uh, you know, and in this effort to return these captives to to Africa, which they eventually successfully did. So. What city was the Lombard School in? In Philadelphia. In Philadelphia. Now, um, for some of our listeners who may not know, very briefly explain to them what the Amistad, what that was about. Well, the Amistad was uh, a slave ship which was uh, which was on its way to the United States. I believe from, from, it was a Spanish ship, I believe, on its way to the United States with slaves, and Cinque led a revolt on, and took over the ship. And uh, once they got, they when they were eventually captured, and once they were captured, they were put on trial before the Supreme Court of the United States, uh, in order for them to be returned to the to to their owners per se, who were the Spanish, uh, their Spanish captives. And of course, the I think Steven Spielberg made a movie about it all, with uh, the former president of the United States, John Quincy Adams, defending them in the Supreme Court, and they were eventually freed. Now, when they were freed. Nobody bothered to figure out what to do with them, and that's, I think, where this autograph collection, where we find it interesting, is the the effort that happens after uh, the the huge events in history that people do know about. This is some of the things that they don't know about, you know. Mm-hmm. And also, it's significant that at that time of the Amistad, it was illegal to import slaves. Oh yeah, and, and that it, was the reason they were allowed to go back to. Africa, and actually, it was probably the first civil rights victory. I think it probably was the first, the first real one. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. I guess another item that I've had in the past is uh, David Walker's appeal. Uh, David Walker was a, f- a free man born in North Carolina. His parents were slaves, but he was a merchant in Boston, and he, uh, in 1829, he published something called Walker's Appeal. Uh, in four articles, which was actually the first uh, thing printed in the United States by by an African American um, 
advocating violent resistance to slavery. And he had it printed himself, and it was, I don't think it re- received very broad uh, circulation. However, it uh, it basically got all the southern governors uh, uh, very unhappy. In, in a few states, they actually outlawed uh, African Americans uh, learning to read because of Walker's appeal. They were afraid they were going to read it. And within, I'd say, a year of his uh, uh, of him his printing this, he he died under mysterious circumstances. So. Okay, a couple of questions. Um, very briefly, David Walker, he was a free man, but his parents were slaves. Do you know how that came about? I, I honestly don't know how he he became free, but he was born free. So perhaps his his parents had uh, received their manumission, you know, or or purchased it. And but he was born in North Carolina. Eventually, made his way to Boston, where he was a merchant. I see. Do you have anything on a Nathaniel Gordon? Uh, he was a captain who was actually hung for importing slaves into the United States. No, I'm I'm familiar with him, but I don't have anything, you know, any books or printed material about that. Mm. Um, so, so we do ha- often have. I mean, obviously, I've I've had or handled or. Uh, slave narratives by Frederick Douglass and William Wells Brown, and uh, who's who's an interesting figure. Not only did he uh, write one of one of the first and most important slave narratives, but he also wrote the first novel by an African American called Clotel, uh, which is was a, um, a fictionalized account of Thomas Jefferson's daughter by his slave. You know, obviously based on in reality, but it was you know quite scandalous at the time, and so he was he was actually probably after Frederick Douglass in Rochester, he was the best known of the uh, the freed slaves and and black leaders. Okay, and uh, what other gems do you have uh, related to? You just mentioned slave narratives. Um, Anything else that our listening audience should be aware of? Uh, I've well, um, I would say that this isn't as necessarily a slave narrative, but I've occasionally had copies of poems on various subjects, religious and moral, by Phyllis Wheatley, which of course is the first book of poetry by any African American, even though it was published in England first, uh, and she was the slave, I believe, of a Boston family, but she was. Mm-hmm. Uh, highly educated and wrote these poems and a, a patroness in England had them published and it's you know obviously a, a well-known book and you know the foundation of African American you know creative literature in, in, in certainly in the United States and that was so, published in 1773 so what difficulties did African Americans have in publishing creative work I think they had a great deal of difficulty up until um, the Harlem Renaissance when, of course, everyone was interested for a few minutes in in black culture. Up until that time, there were very few, uh, up until the, I'd say up until the beginning of the 20th century, there were very few books published by African Americans because mainstream publishers, except for also for a brief moment, the abolitionists published a lot of books in the 1850s and, and 60s. Uh, you know, mainstream publishers weren't interested in publishing African-American books by African-Americans, and they uh, indeed would have to often have to publish them themselves, and consequently there would be very, very little distribution of these works. 
which is why they're consequently rare now and why there actually is a market in such things. And I sort of see my job as preserving the written and printed culture so that we can pretty much inform ourselves from it. So I'll give you an example. I one time found um, in New York a a printed slave narrative by a man named Henry, Henry Goines, and to my surprise, I found out that this book was completely unknown, had never been preserved, and I eventually sold it to an institution that uh, went forward and published it. He was a slave who escaped from Virginia to, into Canada and had published his own uh, narrative of it, but obviously in very, very small numbers, as no copies were preserved anywhere in any library. So. Wow. And that's Henry Goins. Is that G-O-I-N-S? Uh, it is. Okay. I believe so. Or it's actually, uh, oh, sorry, it's Goings, G-O-I-N-G-S. Okay. It's called Rambles of a Runaway from Southern Slavery. Did he have to escape from Virginia or Kentucky? He escaped from Virginia uh, from a place called Windsor Shades, which was near the James River, and this book was actually published in southern Canada, where he had, you know, taken the Underground Railroad and made himself made his way up to to Rochester and from there into Canada. So. Okay. Uh, you also mentioned the Harlem Renaissance. Also, our young listeners out there, give them an insight into what you mean by the Harlem Renaissance. Well, um, beginning in the, the early part of, or the, actually the late 19th and early century, uh, you know, there were African-American poets who got published, like Paul Lawrence Dunbar and his wife, Alice Dunbar. Uh, and eventually there became a critical mass of literature by African-Americans that were actually, for a, a relatively brief period, just mostly the 1920s and early 1930s, were published, were, were published by mainstream publishers, and uh, those included books by Langston Hughes, Claude McKay, Gene Toomer's book Kane, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, who published several both novels and books of anthropology, uh, Nella Larson, Jesse Fawcett, and these were mostly, uh, as the name suggests, you know, centered around the Har- you know, the Harlem area where things like the Cotton Club thrived, and white America became you know fascinated with black culture, and so that helped in a lot of ways to. Uh, you know, to promote this sort of literature that had been had always been there, but had never been so broadly disseminated. Do you have any uh, remarkable authors from that era in your bookstore? Oh, certainly. I have uh, um, I have a, have first editions of Kane, which are I mean, which some of these books. Uh, I, I in some ways I hate to dwell on these these very expensive books because a lot of this history is available out there relatively inexpensively, but what we're talking about are are occasionally very expensive things that we call high spots, things that a lot of people are interested in. But I frequently have books by Langston Hughes and all the other people I mentioned, often signed or inscribed copies. And I one time had a... Um, a typescript of the play called Mulebone, which was actually a joint collaboration between Langston Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston, which was sold into an institution that's preserving it for future generations. And you mentioned the Cotton Club. Um, how did that club come as about getting the name Cotton Club? Well, I, I think it was just you know essentially all the performers were black, and the whole thing they were they were trying to replicate the 
the, the, the old-timey Southern uh, experience, which of course was quite condescending, but I think was popular in the in the uh, in, in the New York culture at the time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah I'm reminded of a movie uh, came out. I think it was called Cotton Comes to Harlem. Sure, absolutely. Uh-huh. And uh, essentially, blacks were selling out to a new form of slavery. Sure. Drugs, basically cocaine. Which yeah, well, that was. Really a... Go ahead. I'm sorry. No, that's okay. There, uh, you know that those books, the Cotton Comes to Harlem, is one one of a number of books by uh, Chester Himes, who was uh, an African American who became quite disaffected affected with the whole American experience and went to Paris as many other African American writers like uh Richard Wright and James Baldwin did. Uh and he spent much of his life in in Paris or in France, uh, you know, writing on the African American experience, but doing it from from a place where he saw as much more convivial to his lifestyle. So. Yeah, there's a lot of jazz musicians that uh took off for Paris. Absolutely. And- France and other European, Amsterdam, uh, places like that, uh, so that they could be uh, a little bit more creative. Yeah, I think it was also curious that once the Depression hit uh, and people didn't have a lot of extra money to keep themselves amused, uh, basically mainstream publishers uh, started to lose interest in, in black writers. And for the next couple of decades, in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s, um, very often, you know, talented black writers once again had to go back to publishing their own material. And there were presses that would, were set up to, you know, if you wanted to write your your uh, your book of poetry, that you would pay them a certain amount of money, and they would print it for you and send you copies, and you could distribute them. But these books have consequently become quite rare in their own right because because they would only distribute, you know, 50 or 100 copies, and if the author didn't write back for more, they'd often be pulped. So so I avidly am searching for books from the 1930s and 40s and 50s by non-mainstream publishers uh, in order to preserve them and, and hopefully to, to sell them into uh, collections that will preserve them. Right. Now, we're talking about Harlem and the, the Harlem Renaissance, Um Poets, writers, musicians. What about the the intellectuals that uh, populated the the Harlem during that period, such as Carter G. Woodson? Well, Carter G. G. Woodson and his associated publishers or Associated Press have changed names a couple times. Were you know absolutely influential on and uh, you know sort of disseminating, doing what in some sense booksellers do now is disseminating. Uh, like African and African American history that didn't couldn't get any other anyone else to publish it uh and he i mean i think he and 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 others like him um uh, there were a number of others uh you know formed a pretty symbiotic group and there were uh you know salons in effect you know of artists and writers and intellectuals and and musicians that sort of formed around uh Harlem society, and for at least for a decade or so, thrived. And after that, there was something of a diaspora of, uh, you know, of creative people, and they they went other places, and they 
you know, like to Paris, for instance, wherever they thought might they might be uh, better received. So. And John Henry Clark was part of that. Yep, John Henry Clark as well. Uh, and I I think it's uh, there. There's been a a movement that by institutions, for instance, you know, that being you know, college and university libraries and things like that. Two, they have a mandate now to preserve these collections. I mean, the Schomburg Center at the New York Public Library is, uh, you know, a, very much designated as as, a, as an African American history repository. I think they believe they have the James Weldon Johnson collection, who was both a, a an, an intellectual and scholar as well as a creative artist of the same period of the sort of Harlem Renaissance. And his you know his collection, I think, formed part of the basis along with the the great black collector Schomburg, uh, it became oh, the yeah. basis for that collection. So. Exactly. Do you have anything by Henry Baker who wrote a book back in the 1800s on black inventors? I do not. I do not. I'm not familiar with him, I, I have to say. So. Okay. Yeah, his name's Henry Baker. I'm not uh, sure right now what uh, the title of that book is, but um, it was in reference to uh, black inventors. Sure. Uh, there have been a number I mean, of uh, inventions by black folk that folk just aren't, uh, just don't know about. In fact, his name was Henry L. Baker, and he was a patent officer. Sure. I'll make a note of him. There's also a fellow named Winters who was an African-American who I believe invented the first fire escape. Uh, I've had... Um, Whoa, get away from your first fire escape? I believe so. I, certain, wow. Certainly one of the first ones that worked. Uh, <laughs> and I've had the, um, I've had some documents uh, about that as well in the past. So. Oh yeah. So uh, yeah, Mr. Baker, being a patent officer, uh, would be in a position uh, to know who was inventing what. On this fire escape, you said the gentleman's name was Winters. Do you have the first name? I, I, I would have to look it up. Quite frankly. Uh, uh, he also published poetry, and, and I've really had more of his poetry and things, mostly on single sheets, which are called broadsides, which would be hung on the wall sort of thing. Uh, I believe his name, it might have been John Winters, but I would, I would, as I said, I'd have to check into that some. So. Yeah, well, <laughs> I guess it would be a black man that would invent something associated with escape. <laughs> that makes perfect sense. So. <laughs> yeah. Although I, I will admit it, it never occurred to me in the past. <laughs> yeah, well, we're gonna we're gonna investigate Mr. Winters and probably put something up on Facebook. Okay. Uh, relative to that, uh, is there anything you would like to add, sir, before we close? Um, not particularly. Only except to say that that I think that there is a uh, a very deep and complex history that is, you know, that people know something about the sort of high spots and great men, great African men and women in history, but there's, it goes so much deeper than that. And there's so much more material out that, a lot of which that, that is struggling to be preserved. And I think it's a, a fairly, I think it's something that people should look into more, and there are great repositories for this sort of thing. And and to, if they want to learn more about their history, it can be found. Well, now mentioning that, before we get away, what's your contact information, and do you have any book fairs coming?
coming up where folks can come check you out? Oh, sure. Well, we have a, a website which is called bet- betweenthecovers.com, www.betweenthecovers.com, where we have a fully searchable website with perhaps 10,000 or more African-American books uh, amongst our inventory. And uh, we don't have a lot of book fairs coming up. I just came back from the London Book Fair a couple weeks ago, and and we do fairs around the country. Uh, And we also have issued many catalogs of books on African-American literature, which if people can, if they would like to see one of these, we could be perfectly happy to send them to them if they mail email at tom at betweenthecovers.com. Okay. And um, how did you meet Leslie, our producer? Uh, I believe she was at the New York Antiquarian Book Fair, which is the oldest book fair in America and, and one of the best. And uh, and I think she came and, uh, may, while she knows a lot about the history, may not have known about the books as artifacts and as things to be preserved. You know, And I, I keep mentioning the artifact as opposed to the, like, the text, which is often digitized and online. And, Often the books and the way they feel tell us a lot about what happened if they were very cheaply made because they were, you know, they they had to pay for them themselves and so forth. Now, and that website is www.betweenthecovers, and that's the yep. covers of a book. Dot com. Dot com, right? That's it. Okay. Well, I'm sure that uh, we'd like to have you back in the future to talk about uh, your books, et cetera. And your bookstore is what near what attractions? Uh, well, it's been the, the whole attraction of Philadelphia. I'd say we're we're no more than ten minutes by car from the from Center City, Philadelphia. So, so oh, just so, so you're you're near the Bell and the courthouses and oh all yeah, that. we're we're moments away. So. Okay. Well, we certainly appreciate uh, your visiting us. And I uh, want to thank you very much, our guest, Tom Congleton. Did I pronounce that right? You did. Okay. Bookstore thank- owner. All right. Well, who, thank you, uh, Preston. May be back to visit us in the future. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, sir. All Good right. night. Bye now.